Who is Caitlin Long? And why do the powers that be want to shut her down? Imagine that you're a banker leading a two decade long prolific career on Wall Street and then the 2008 financial crisis erupts. Suddenly you peek behind the veil and see that the world isn't as it seems. Your curiosity leads you to discover that our entire financial system is built on a house of cards. You realize that if the system is fundamentally corrupted and broken, the answer is to build something better. And so you do. You submit your proposal to the Fed, eagerly awaiting that rubber stamp. They keep you hanging for two years, and finally they tell you your financial institution is too risky, that it isn't safe, and that they can't let you into the club. Meanwhile, a banking crisis erupts and the government bails out the depositors. In the past two weeks, serious difficulties at a small number of banks have emerged. The fragility of the banking system is exposed even more, and whispers of coordinated takedowns of the competition emerge. You are somehow thrust in the middle of it all. So what do you do? You put on your armor and get ready for battle. As we were chatting before we started, we're, uh, we, we're thrust into some things that are much bigger than us, and we didn't ask for any of this. Uh, obviously, the FTX implosion, which, by the way, uh, if you've been watching my work, I was very skeptical of FTX, and there's a lot I can't disclose about my work behind the scenes to try to root out fraud in this industry. We knew <laughs> that that was a problematic entity, yeah. and uh, and uh, so we got caught up, of course, in that, and then now we're caught up in this in, in this anti-Fed wave. And again, I didn't ask to be put in either of those positions, but just fate put us here, and here we are. And uh, uh, I'm somebody who is somebody who really embraces change and um, and, and takes advantage of the the circumstances that life throws at me. And, and, and one of the examples of it is how I ended up with the Wyoming blockchain coalition in the first place. I just thought I would, was going to donate appreciated Bitcoin in 2017 to fund an endowment for female engineers. And then all of a sudden uh, they, the Wyoming had a bad money transmitter law. I volunteered to roll up sleeves and help fix that quietly. And then the legislators came and said, we want, more, what else can we do? What else can we do? And the whole thing snowballed and I just went with it. So here's a, a similar example. I'm just going with it. Uh, but back to your question, there, there is a historical significance of what we're doing here. And in fact, actually, throughout most of human history, banks have not been as unstable as they are today. And the reason is because they were just money warehouses. Right. They were back when gold was money. And by the way, gold um, independently became money in multiple cultures that, as far as historians can tell, throughout thousands of years, it didn't connect with each other. Uh, and, and so the, the interesting question is, why did it evolve to become the money, but it did, it was physical, and the banks were just storage, just vaults, just just safekeepers of gold coins for people who had saved their money. Uh, and, the, and the most honest banks um, issued warehouse receipts, of course, what you do when you deposit like a car in your valet parking garage or a coat at your coat check, you get a, a, a receipt back. That's a receipt that, uh, that in, if, if it, if, if the bank is viewed as honest when you don't, when you, when you store your gold coins there, that receipt itself 
becomes money. It becomes something that can be exchanged in the secondary market without having to actually move the goal. Yeah. And, and, uh, and that's how, unfortunately, fractional reserve banking started to evolve was that uh, banks who started out, and perhaps, by the way, Sam Bankman-Fried started out, he didn't intend to build a Ponzi scheme. That's what he actually did. But I think a lot of, a lot of Ponzi schemers don't necessarily intend. There certainly are some who are fraudsters from the get-go, but most don't intend to create a Ponzi scheme. But what ends up happening is that they get over their skis and then they, they're desperate to try to trade their way out of it and fix it. And that's indeed what happened with a lot of the banks that went fractional. They decided to roll the dice. They decided to take the risk that, and here's the important line, not everyone shows up to withdraw their money at the same time. Yes. And on the average day, that is true. It's true until it's not true. And then it's catastrophically not true. Right. Because the bank fails. And in the, so, so bringing it back to today, obviously what we have is a fractional reserved system. And because of the internet, we now have information moving at the speed of light. It is now very widely known that the equity in the banking system, especially the small community and regional banks, in other words, the small and medium-sized banks in the United States, if you mark to market the bond portfolios on those balance sheets, the equity is almost entirely gone. And that's before you mark to market the interest rate risk and credit risk in the bank's loan portfolios, which are not marked to market on their balance sheet. Okay, so what that's telling you is something that those of us who've studied the industry for years have known all along. Right. At an aggregate level, it's insolvent. That was true a week ago, a month ago, a year ago, 10 years ago, 100 years ago. At an aggregate level, it's always insolvent. What it relies upon is the confidence that not everyone will show up and withdraw their money at the same time. Yes. And what we've seen is that at individual banks, that is unfortunately what has actually happened. I, I shouldn't actually qualify it with unfortunately, because actually most of us think that the money that we have in the bank is our own. In fact, it's not. We've made a loan to a leveraged entity and we should have the right to our own money. In the, in the old bank model of warehouse basically money warehouses, that money legally was ours and the bank did not have the right to steal it and go off and, and earn interest on it without paying you the interest and with sticking you with all the risk, which is, which is how the banking model works today. And I'll close this by saying that, that, that old banking model of borrow short term and lend long term. So you have this maturity transformation. It only works in an era where information does not travel at the speed of light. And now information does travel at the speed of light. And we're seeing the impact of the internet on the old analog bank system. And it just has a fundamentally broken model. Yeah, that makes so much sense, Caitlin. Um, so that's basically your idea with Custodia is to have a money warehouse in a sense, right? But more towards Correct. Bitcoin. Right. Like that is the focus of Custodia. Well, so Custodia's proposal to the Fed was very simple for U.S. dollars. It was to keep all of the customer funds on deposit at the Fed. So basically back to back with no maturity transformation and then to provide custody services for Bitcoin and Ethereum. 
So the custody business was off balance sheet. If you look at Custodia's what's called call report, which we filed with the Wyoming Division of Banking, you will see that Custodia has 100% of its investments in cash. Yeah, that's crazy because we just don't see that now. And so you're Correct. arguing that this is something that is safer, right? And the Fed is saying, of course, this is unsafe. And so we're going to reject you. <laughs> but at the same time, you have the fractional reserve banks, which make up the majority of the banking system, if I understand correctly, they're Correct. imploding for the reasons that you mentioned before. <laughs> and there's also looks like there's also some other things that are happening as well at the same time. Like I was reading this really interesting article, like I pointed out to you earlier off camera, which is uh, by Nick Carter on Operation Choke Point 2.0. Mm-hmm. Um, Operation Choke Point was basically that there was a lot of pressure for certain industries to no longer be in favor with banks and be involved with them. And so it looks like this is what's happening with crypto at the same time. So some of the banks like Silvergate, yes. Signature, it looks like there might have been some nefarious things going on as well. And in that article, Operation Choke Point 2.0, Nick Carter points out how you're involved in that story as well, because what you're trying to do with Custodia um, is so involved in in the crypto space, it would offer something that that people need who are involved in crypto. And so it looks like the powers that be just don't want that. Well, that's clear. (laughs) So to come back to what's happened, uh, the traditional banks that have failed had 6% cash reserves against deposits. Custodia's proposal was to have 108% cash reserves against customers' deposits. So the extra eight cents for every dollar of customer deposits is the shareholder's equity. It's the capital. And we had proposed to keep all of it in cash. So there would have been an 8% cash buffer in our account at the Fed, whereas the average bank is 6% cash buffer, Crazy. not 108%. Crazy. So just to give you a sense, right. And, and the Fed considered that unsafe and unsound. And it's actually, I'm glad that the Fed released the 86 page order because for many reasons, one of which is that the the, the, there's a lot of confidential information that they typically do not release about applicants, but they did in this case. We'll come back maybe and talk about um, potential reasons why. But what it means is that you can get a peek inside the temple and how things work uh, with the Fed, and, which is a notoriously opaque organization that consistently rejects Freedom of Information Act requests, etc., um, from at, at the reserve banks. Uh, so, long story short, um, the the one of the reasons why it's it's fun to see that order in the context of time because that order was the order that the uh, board of governors the seven federal reserve governors voted on january 27th and here's the punchline it said that because custodia was planning to keep 108 cents in cash for every dollar of deposits and not have fdic insurance that that made us more susceptible to bank runs (laughs) Okay, in the context of what has happened since then with these FDIC insured banks that have had actual bank runs, um, it's it's most people I think would have the exact reaction you just had, which is it's just it it beg it's beyond belief uh, that that the Fed would say that. And and again, history is not going to be kind. That the head of of the supervision and regulation division at the Fed, Vice Chair Michael Barr who's going to be hauled up in front of the Senate and um, House banking committees this week to discuss the regulatory failures at the Fed. 
on the day of the Silicon Valley bank run, he made a speech, an anti-crypto speech, in which he said that Fed-supervised banks don't have bank runs, I'm paraphrasing here, because they're Fed-supervised and they're subject to prudential uh, requirements. Well, <laughs> I think that must be um, probably the, the, the worst timed bank regulatory uh, comment from a bank regulator anywhere in the world because the biggest bank run since 2008 was happening at that very moment. And this morning, we now see that the FDIC insurance fund is going to take a $20 billion loss on Silicon Valley Bank. Wow. And they, the Fed clearly didn't see it coming. In fact, Jay Powell, two days before, Barr made that statement about Fed supervised banks not having bank runs, told his Humphrey Hawkins testimony, um, uh, told both the House and the Senate that the financial system was stable. Right. And so again, like these are these are comments that history will not be kind, and and Custodia finds itself caught up in all of those without us having asked for it. We we applied two and a half years ago, right. <laughs> and and then uh, all of a sudden it all comes to a head um, right right in in, in the, the middle of this of vortex. Of this. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know what I see here, Caitlin, is that it looks like the veil has been lifted. Right. Because (laughs) this situation has been going on for a very long time. I was reading about um, the FDIC a little bit and they actually came to be during uh, FDR's reign. Right. And so 1933. Right. And that was a time too. And at AIER, we're really interested in that because that's how AIER was founded. It was actually a response to the New Deal. Right. So interesting. The idea was, okay, this is not a good idea. This is going to be bad for Americans. And so basically, Colonel Harwood uh, started writing about this. And then it kind of grew from there. So the idea was, the FDIC was founded in 1933. And a whole bunch of other things changed under the New Deal. And to me, what it looks like what I'm kind of discovering is that looks like the architecture of America changed. And suddenly yes. it was actually legal for the government to regulate the financial system. And so, correct, you know, at a federal level. Right. And we've yes. been living in this since then for yes. 90 years, but without yes. realizing that that's not the way that it was before. So absolutely. And it's fundamentally unstable. And I'm glad you raised this because throughout most of U.S. history, the states chartered banks. It wasn't until the National Bank Act during the Civil War, which was a Lincoln-era enacted uh, piece of legislation at the same time as the U.S. made the dollar uh, a consistent um, currency across all 50 states. Um, So that was the time that, 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 that you had federal bank chartering. Okay, so all the way up in U.S. history until that year, until the Civil War, only the states chartered banks. Okay, then the next milepost was when the Fed was created in 1913 during the progressive era, same year as the federal income tax came into being. Hmm. And then to your point, you had the, the exclamation point put on it in 1933, but uh, when, the, when the FDIC came, uh, came into being. But the states historically always had the right to charter banks. Now, there's been an evolution where the states voluntarily decided that they wanted their banks to be insured. And so many states, if not most, have statutes on the books that state chartered banks must be FDIC insured. Except now you're starting to see states like Wyoming and Connecticut and 
Nebraska and I think Florida is on the way, pushing back and saying, no, we don't want a federalization of banking. Okay, so when the states chose that their banks must be FDIC insured, what they did was bow down to the FDIC. Now, you raised the point earlier about something called Operation Choke Point 2.0. The FDIC, in fact, the current head of the FDIC, led during the Obama administration a crusade to debank 30 different industries. It started in 2011 with the payday lenders, and then it went to the, all the politically incorrect industries. Firearms. Um, firearms, adult entertainment, gaming, etc. 30 different industries. Okay. And crypto definitely got caught up in that as well. And then Trump tried to put that to a stop. It's back and they're starting in version 2.0 with crypto. Mm -hmm. Do not think for a moment that they will not take this power that they, that they have gained by the success that they have had by debanking the crypto industry and go back to those 30 different industries. And it's so interesting because the state of Wyoming enacted an uninsured bank charter. And as you just saw in the Fed's order about custodia, the Fed is rejecting it because it's uninsured. What does that mean? It means federalization of power over banking. It means that the so-called dual banking system, which has existed since the Civil War, where the, the state's ability to charter banks is on par with the federal government's ability to charter banks. And they exist in parallel. That's why it's called the dual banking system. Mm -hmm. The Fed just gutted the dual banking system by saying that uninsured banks cannot be Fed member banks. That's taking power away from the states. That's the Fed saying we are more powerful than the U.S. states. Wow. So watch to see what the states do. I think it's fascinating. You've got Wyoming and uh, now I, I just literally saw Florida is discussing an uninsured bank charter as well. The, it, you're starting to see the states take some power back. It has always been the state's choice whether to require the banks to be insured or not. Now, if the bank is uninsured and it's going to do the fractional reserve lending, then uh, that Wyoming in its infinite wisdom said, well, then it can't lend. If it's uninsured, it must be a money warehouse. We must go back to what those ori that original bank model that has existed through most of human history is. It has to be stable. You cannot let a banker roll the dice and privatize profits and socialize losses. If the bank is not going, if the bank is not going to be insured, then it must not lend and therefore must keep 100% cash. And that is exactly what Custodia proposed. And of course, the Fed just rejected as unsafe and unsound. Um, I will say the FDIC, a lot of folks, including state, state legislators, need to wake up and realize the FDIC is very thinly funded. It was uh, around $128 billion in its, in its fund at, at the end of 2022. Now it just announced this morning it spent twenty billion of that one hundred twenty-eight billion on Silicon Valley Bank, and it's announced a week and a half ago it spent two and a half billion on Signature. Okay, so give or take, it's around one hundred five billion to insure ten trillion of insured deposits, and there are eighteen trillion of deposits in the U.S. banking system. Okay, we're going to need a bigger boat, folks, um, because to the extent that this bank run is not over yet, and I do not believe that it is then I do believe that um, the U.S. government is going to come in and guarantee 
all of those 10 trillion of bank deposits. Um, now, there is an argument that the uh, creation of the FDIC, um, Gary North, one of the Austrian economists, um, um, believed vehemently that the FDIC's guarantee of bank deposits in the, in the Depression era stopped the Depression. And there is an argument to be made for that, um, that effectively a taxpayer guarantee of all bank deposits um, did stop the Depression and that that might be necessary here. However, back then the U.S. was not a debtor nation. The U.S. was a lender nation. Mm. And now we are a debtor nation. And if you think the debt ceiling fight is going to be tough before the bank runs started and the FDIC fund needed to be replenished, just wait until you start piling on potentially hundreds of billions, if not more, of, of losses that the FDIC is going to have to guarantee. Again, remember that the, the losses on the bond portfolios in the, in the banking system were $640 billion at the end of 2022 alone, much less the loan portfolios, which are not marked to market, and we don't know what the, what the credit default and interest rate risk in those loan portfolios is. Okay, so the world is waking up to what has been there all along, yeah. which is a fundamental instability and a fundamental insolvency. And thank God Satoshi created Bitcoin. Right. Well, you know, that's so funny that you ended on that point about Bitcoin, because that's exactly where my mind was going to as you were wrapping up, right? It's I was watching a podcast that you did with somebody, I forget which one, but you were talking about how for yourself in 2008, when that financial crisis happened, you were you were thinking, okay, there's something that I have to look into here, right? And that's what yep. happened with Bitcoin as well. These kind of similar um, uh, ideas that came out of that, uh, out of the ashes of that, which was there's something Correct. broken in the system. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about what that process looked like for you? How did you change? Like, what did you start thinking about? Well, it's interesting because I'm seeing, to your point, I'm seeing that a lot more traditional finance people are waking up and I, and I just qualitatively, my own little corner of the universe is my LinkedIn account. Um, it just, as the bank runs were happening, there was just a staggering volume of new requests and messages from, 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 and LinkedIn is mostly professionals, right? You don't have as many impersonators and, you know, crazy bots and things like that, like you do in some of the other social media sites. Yeah. But, um, but what's, what's interesting is that it's, it's finance people, it's lawyers, it's accountants, it's, it's a lot of the people in and around the, the traditional banking industry, and they were all waking up. And I was seeing what they were going through and remembering back 15 years ago to what I was going through in 2008. And for me, the aha moment was when Tim Geithner, the Secretary of Treasury at the time, had given an interview um, saying that, uh, to Charlie Rose, I believe it was on PBS, uh, saying that the reason why we got into the 2008 financial crisis was that the Fed had held interest rates too low and it created a, the mortgage bubble. And then a week or two later, he gave an interview saying the Fed needs to lower interest rates. Mm. And my gosh, the, in, the intellectual inconsistency between those two statements is what tipped it off and got me very curious because I learned, I realized what I'd learned in school and paid tens of thousands of dollars of tuition for from fancy schools um, wasn't how things really worked. 
what we were taught about how the banking system works and the old fractional reserve banking system, that started to get diluted back in as early as the 70s. And the rise of the shadow banking system, specifically with the securities markets, doing a lot of the financing and credit creation in the U.S. system, that wasn't what we learned, at least for me, in school in the, in the, in the early 90s, mm-hmm. in college and graduate school. So, um, boy, it was, um, it, it was, a, it was, a, it was a, an, an eye-opening. And I looked at the broad spectrum of of economic schools of thought. And it was, I went back actually, one of the very few notebooks that I saved from my college years is called History of Economic Thought. And I went back through that and I realized that the more ex- the more unusual versions of schools of economic thought, like the Austrians on one end and the modern monetary theory on the other, the old chartalism, they weren't covered in that class. And that's not a critique of the professor. They were considered fringe on both sides of the political spectrum back then. Well, now we're seeing modern monetary theory implemented in real life. Yeah. And that was considered fringe back then. Um, but I did the, a big, deep, broad and deep dive on different schools of economic thought and ended up landing on in the Austrian school, but not as the Austrians were portraying it. Because I understood that the shadow banking system was causing all kinds of things that... I think if, if someone like Murray Rothbard were still alive, that he would have been all over it. But unfortunately, he passed away in the early 90s. And so you didn't have his, he didn't have the ability to, to see the rise of the shadow banking system and, and, and change the Austrian school of thought to update it to what was actually happening in the real world today. But that's where I went. And I, because to me, in order to conclude that that's, essentially the right explanation, which I believe it is, Austrian um, business cycle theory and, and essentially capital theory. Here's why I landed that that it mattered, because it was the only school of thought that really focused on the balance sheet. Hmm. And and ultimately, balance sheets matter. And, you know, I know we're, we're living through the era where tech companies can fund themselves with huge negative free cash flow and huge profit, negative profits for years. Okay. And that causes a lot of people to think, oh, their balance sheet doesn't matter. It doesn't matter until it's the only thing that matters. And if you debauch your balance sheet, you will implode at some point. And, and that's happening, you know, that happens on an individual level, it happens at a country level, at a company level. And of course, it happens at a, at a country level as well. It may take years, but it, it will happen. And, and to me, that's why I landed on the Austrian school. But the thing that I criticize about the Austrian school traditionally is the consistent calls for hyperinflation, which have been wrong. Hmm. And to me, the really interesting question is, why? Why has the Austrian school missed hyperinflation? The Paul Krugmans of the world would say, well, that's because the theory's wrong. And I would come back and say, no, that's not the case. It's, it's because the, what the Austrians missed was that there was a lot of accumulated savings in the U.S. economy that supported the increase of additional debt. And we will eventually deplete those accumulated savings. Mm. And it's very, it's very hard to measure just how money, how much we have left. But the balance sheet that our parents and grandparents and great grandparents bequeathed the United States has allowed us to go on this debt binge for, you know, 50 years. And Mm. that's why, uh, you know, when Nixon went off the gold window, the dollar didn't collapse. And that's why 
a lot of Austrians in 2008 who were calling for hyperinflation were wrong. Hmm. But they're not going to be wrong at some point. And to me, the most interesting scholarship that I wish they would undertake is is why were those calls for hyperinflation wrong? And, and because then I think it would advance the discussion and, and, and bring this all back to, to the forefront because ultimately those schools of economic thought, I, I think especially Hayek right now, Hayek foresaw the rise of Bitcoin. He foresaw the rise of non-government money mm-hmm. in the 70s and, and using technology. He understood this. And, and yet no one's talking about this as the counterweight to when Janet Yellen comes out and testifies and says that the federal debt doesn't matter. You know, uh, it, 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 there's so much economic illiteracy that no one, it, no one pushed back. What she's espousing when she says that is that she believes in modern monetary theory. And of course, look what the Fed did under her reign. Right, right. So maybe what what's happening now is that there's a nouveau wave of people who are kind of thinking about Austrian economics. And Bitcoin is representative of that in a big way as well, I think, right? And yes. so maybe that's kind of like the the extremes of the poll you know, our MMT on this side and Austrian on this side. And so maybe that's why people are thinking about that in this way. And I think those are some really interesting questions for people to think about in practical terms, right? So yeah. So then once you started to kind of open that up, what happened mm-hmm. then? Like, how did you decide to put that into action? Well, I started to see in 2012 in, in the some of the chat rooms and email email groups that I was part of, um, that that Bitcoin started to bubble up. And then I really dug in. It was Jeffrey Tucker who sent out an email to his um, liberty.me email group. It is starting to explain Bitcoin. And I respected his work. And it, so I finally decided to dig in. It just so happened that I actually had a surgery at the time. I was flat on my back and really dug in in early 2013 um, in a in a way that um, that caused me to actually set up my first Bitcoin wallet back then. And then I started to to um, go down the, the, the rabbit hole. And what I find is that when most people go down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, they they rarely come back out if you really go down the rabbit hole, because you start to see that it is incredibly powerful to decentralize power away from governments and away from companies hmm. back to the individual. Yeah. And it cannot be corrupted. It, 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 back then, it could. It was so nascent and not decentralized yet. Um, in fact, actually, I just came from a, a, a regulatory conference at Wharton on Friday, and there was a professor from... Uh, well, it's a Chatham House rule, so I won't I won't disclose who who it was. But um, that this person is not a uh, is not is not a, an economist, not a not a Bitcoiner um, by by ideology. Um, he's a, a computer scientist, and he started to look at objective ways to measure decentralization. Mm. And back in 2011, 2012, there were so few people who were using and who were. Um, running nodes on the Bitcoin network that if the U.S. government wanted to shut it down back then, it could have. Hmm. It could have it could have taken over uh, the, the enough nodes and executed a 51% attack. At this point, it's so decentralized that it can't. And this person's research, and I hope he publishes it, 
um, it, it essentially is, is, is proving what I intuitively knew, which is that Bitcoin became truly decentralized around 2014. And that, by the way, it happens to be when Bernanke testified during his Humphrey Hawkins testimony up on Capitol Hill, and somebody asked him about Bitcoin. And he said, well, that's an interesting technology. Well, that's right about when a lot of mainstream people said, all right, they're not going to ban it. Let's go. And uh-huh. back then, Overstock.com uh, um, uh, um, put a pay with Bitcoin button on its website. And a lot of us early Bitcoiners bought all of our Christmas presents that year on Overstock.com because you rolled it out right before the the uh, the Christmas season. Uh, those were, in retrospect, very, very, very expensive Christmas right. presents. But all of us were, were just bootstrapping the network back then. Um, and so I don't look at it that way. I look at it as um, an investment in the long term for, frankly, the next generations of Americans who are going to have the benefit of the fact that this network got bootstrapped by a lot of people early on from um, computer scientists to gamers to the liberty movement, um, who all in, the, in those early years made Bitcoin decentralized. And in that 2012 to 2014 period, which is when I started to get it involved, um, that's when it became decentralized and you really had an explosion of network effects. And at this point, it cannot be corrupted by a government that wants to take it over. In fact, what we're seeing is that probably on, uh, on a stealth basis, governments, more governments are getting involved with it. Right. They're recognizing the power of it. Right. So is there also something with Bitcoin, um, some kind of parallel between the kind of 1800s American banking system, which was more decentralized and so less fragile, right? And then Bitcoin, is it kind of mimicking that in a sense? It is, but back then, you know, money was gold and that always suffered from the challenge that it was difficult to move. Hmm. It's certainly a lot easier to move than silver, but you still had, you couldn't move it across space and time very easily because of its physical properties. And ultimately that in a, in a digital world is the big reason why I think Bitcoin is digital gold. Uh, and I know that there's a big fight between the, those who say that we're going to ultimately go back to a gold standard versus those who say, no, we're going to go to a Bitcoin standard. I think they ultimately, as most people are waking up and realizing the, the instability of the traditional financial system, they're looking for ways to opt out And the honest truth is nobody knows how it's going to play out. You cannot predict the future with certainty. You can apply principles. And the basic principle that I think most people are applying when, you know, all these people who are linking in with me, who are, who are, who are following my, my explanation of what was happening in the, in the traditional finance world back, especially at the, at the heat of the moment in Silicon Valley failure weekend, Mm -hmm. um, that those folks weren't looking at alternative schools of economic thought, they were looking for what's going to retain value in a collapse, okay? And so, of course, there are lots of alternatives of which gold, silver, platinum, real estate, collectibles, jewelry, you know, um, uh, lots of different things are physical. By the way, um, it could be that if things get really bad, as you know, it's it's cans of tuna that have the, right. the most value. Right. Um, you really don't know. I mean, it's quite plausible that, that gold has no value whatsoever. It's entirely subjective. And that's another big piece that a lot of people, uh, because they've been 
um, if they learned in school that money had to have backing of a government. Right. The idea that something is ephemeral, that something is entirely subjective, subjective value theory. Boy, you know, what's the, what's, what's the value of your house? It's entirely subjective. It's entirely what someone is willing to pay you for yeah. it. Okay. And, you, you know, and, and ultimately all of these finite tangible things, the value of them is entirely what someone else is willing to pay you for it when you need to sell it. And, um, and that's true of, of all of the list of things that I just shared. So when people are waking up and realizing that the traditional system isn't stable and they're looking for a place to retain value or an insurance policy against the instability of the traditional system, what they're really doing is implicitly making a subjective value judgment that a lot of others are going to reach the same conclusion and they're going to get in before the masses reach the same conclusion. And they may or may not be right. I sat with losses on my Bitcoin for a couple of years, mm -hmm. but I'm so glad I didn't give up on it. And I got goxed, by the way, because back then... Um, I'm not a computer scientist, and I certainly didn't have the skills to self-custody. But after I got Gox, and what I mean by that is Mt. Gox, which was the first Bitcoin exchange that collapsed, it went fractional. Um, and I had coins caught up in Mt. Gox, and, it, and the bankruptcy process is underway. And it's, you know, we've had those coins, it will have been probably almost 10 years before we could get the get 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 out the coins that, that all of us who were Goxed got stuck with. I wrote them off a long time ago. Um, and so if I get something back, great. But here's my point. That was incredibly cheap tuition. I didn't have that mm. many, but it was incredibly cheap tuition because it taught me the most important lesson, which is that I did not own the Bitcoins that I had on deposit at Mt. Gox. That was a loan that I had made to Mt. Gox and that was not a solvent institution. And when it went under, I became a creditor. Mm. And it, it's going to take 10 years plus for me to get whatever you know, fraction of the Bitcoins back. Huge, important life lesson. And, uh, you know, for me to lose a few thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin, it was the cheapest tuition I ever paid. So I could imagine how that could influence how you decided to go with Custodia. But before we get into that, I wanted to bring up a point with you that I was just thinking of as well while you were speaking on that, which is that a lot of the times people who are skeptic of Bitcoin say exactly that. Mm -hmm. Well, it doesn't have any inherent value. You know, it's just subjective. Uh, people just decide. They just give it value. But I was thinking of this the other day. They do the same thing with fiat money, right? Like they've decided that, of you course. know, fiat is valuable. They put their trust in it. They believe in fiat money. So Correct. what do you think about that? <laughs> well, what's the intrinsic value of a piece of paper with a picture of a dead president in green ink on it? <laughs> it's all a confidence game. All of it. It's all a confidence game. And that's the point. It's all subjective. Yeah. So ultimately, what historically has given commodities value is, that it, it is their scarcity. Okay? And so the, the model that historically has been used to value commodities is stock to flow, which is really another way of saying supply demand. Mm -hmm. Okay. What's the, what's the available supply and what is the demand for that available supply? And when you realize that Bitcoin is scarce and no one is ever going to hijack the code because it's so decentralized at this point, and there's such a beautiful balance 
of incentives in the Bitcoin system for those who are operating the nodes not to let it be hijacked. Okay, we there was a group that tried to hijack it. Go back and read the book, The Block Size War. I think it's very important for people on a Bitcoin journey to read that book because you will understand there was a group of supposed Bitcoiners who tried to hijack it because they wanted to have big blocks. What would that have done? It would have given corporate power to the system. And it turns out that all of us node operators pushed back with something called the user activated soft fork. It's, it's, it, it, those who are running nodes choose which client of the Bitcoin software to run. And if all of the node operators choose not to run a big block client code, then guess what? Bitcoin will continue as is. Huh. And, and that was what was called the hard fork into Bitcoin Cash. The big blockers went to Bitcoin Cash. Look what happened in the market since then. The, the, the regular folks who were running Bitcoin nodes proved that that's who controls the Bitcoin network. It is truly decentralized. It's not the Bitcoin miners. It's not the large centralized entities like the Coinbases of the world. Mm -hmm. It is the individual node operators who control Bitcoin. That is, a, that is it's such an important concept for anyone who's digging into Bitcoin to understand. That's how it became decentralized. And again, um, that this, this work, I wish I could um, point to it, because it's not published yet, shows that it really did become essentially bulletproof decentralized back in 2014. That, and it stayed that way. That's actually really, then. really cool, Caitlin. I didn't know that. And um, I think it makes a philosophical point as well, which is really important for people. And um, I point that out because... I was speaking with a friend of mine yesterday. I said I would have you on. And he's a person who's really a liberty person, right? The mm -hmm. philosophy of liberty, all of that stuff, Austrian economics, but he doesn't get Bitcoin. You know, he's like, I get that Ugh. it's scarce. I get all of this kind of stuff, you know. Um, right. But his biggest question, and he said, please ask Caitlin this question. <laughs> so, okay. Fire so it was... What about if the government doesn't allow Bitcoin to happen? Like, what if they uh, block Bitcoin? What happens then? Okay. And how could they block okay, it? That's different. Well, that's different than the government taking over the network, right. which is the so-called 51% attack where they would get enough nodes to take over yeah. the network or and big corporations or big banks, right? Yeah. Or Greenpeace, right? We just mm. saw an attack on Bitcoin last week from the Ripple community where um, basically working with Greenpeace oh. to say this is not green, we shouldn't we shouldn't um, spend energy to mine Bitcoin. Right. I 100% disagree with that. And in fact, believe the opposite, um, that, 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 it, that in order to secure the value of money, you have to spend money to produce it. Yeah. If money is too cheap to produce, then it will be then too much of it will be printed. That's been that's been um, completely uh, confirmed many times over through human history. In fact, it's it's the cost of production of the money that that has to be high in order to secure its scarcity. Okay. Um, but uh, uh, anyway, that's, that's, uh, I just actually, I just realized I lost your question. No, but, no, so um, it's okay. So what happens then? Uh, and that's an interesting piece as well, because this speaks to a yeah. lot of the pressure that's being done, you know, directly and indirectly ah, against Bitcoin, right? Yep. But now you remember, okay, yep. so run with it. Okay. <laughs> 
So it's not the, it, thank you. It's not, it's not the, 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 the government taking over the network. It's the, it's can the government ban the use of it right. within its borders right. or can it, can it change the taxes to make it punitive? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we already have punitive taxes on Bitcoin. If you transact in any digital asset, you have to report every transaction. So what's really funny is last year I had a a reward that came in through one of the accounts that I keep at an exchange where I don't have much money on it, but I do have a little bit of hot wallet. Um, and I got four cents of reward on something. And I have to report that transaction for the four cents on my income statement, mm-hmm. uh, on my income tax return. Okay. So, um, so that, it's really funny because yeah. I, I don't transact. I've, I've long ago squirreled, squirreled it away. Um, but, uh, but, but I have, a, I'm going to have to report the four cents. Um, just the cost of reporting that four cents and the, and the hassle factor for the, uh, tax authorities, um, on that is kind of funny, but it is, you have to add a zero threshold. You have to report literally everything. Okay. So it is already punitive, but the proposal in the Biden budget is to treat it very similar to housing, where if you have a gain, it's, um, um, it is taxable, but you cannot write off your loss. Yeah. So they're making that an asymmetry um, if, if that budget gets uh, passed, uh, which I don't think it will. But um, th- then the other question is just banning people from using it. Okay, here's the thing. Once you go down the rabbit hole of how you protect your own Bitcoin, you quickly realize that the engineers are ahead. And, and uh, years ago, back in 2014, 2015, the engineers made it possible for you to self-custody your Bitcoin right here in your head. All you have to do is memorize your seed recovery phrase and walk across a border and you can, you can use your Bitcoin in a new, uh, in, in your new locale. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they, if, if you put a Bitcoin on a hardware device, like a hardware wallet, the government can confiscate it from you. If you put it on your phone, the government can confiscate it from you. But Bitcoin truly is just code. It cannot be confiscated unless the government tortures you to give up your, your seed recovery phrase. Okay. So, um, that is so important because that's one of the ways that you can self custody your Bitcoin. And, um, Nassim Taleb, I've got to give him a hat tip, um, that, that he came up with that in the introduction to Saifedean Amos's the Bitcoin standard, that this is the first money that exists solely in digital form. It's natively digital, which means that you can memorize what it takes for you to recover it if you end up becoming a refugee yep. and needing to flee an authoritarian government and they can never prove that you have it in your head. Yeah, no, that is that is a really, really important point. And I've heard people talk about that before, you know, thinking of other authoritarian regimes and how, you know, they were able to just pull your gold teeth out and things like that, right? I mean, they can't do that. Right. You, you can walk across the border. Uh, another great example is just in Canada, just to the north of the US, right? When you saw the truckers convoy and little old ladies yeah. who were donating to this convoy who had their bank accounts frozen. If, you know, banks are being kind of cut off or um, it's Correct. it's making it more difficult to have this kind of decentralized banking system as a whole and have more banks and they're moving towards greater centralization, basically bigger banks running the show, like it kind of looks like... And federalization. Right. It looks yes. like it's going in, in that direction, right? And Absolutely CBDC, yes. FedNow, yes. things like that. Well, then it's really important to kind of have... Um, something, an opposing force to that, 
in a sense, with Bitcoin and um, institutions like Custodia, right? So can you speak to a little bit of the broader picture there? Yeah, well, Custodia is designed for businesses and to, to provide custody services for businesses that can't self-custody. So for example, a registered investment advisor must, must comply with the SEC custody rule, which separated the management of assets from the custody of the assets. Mm -hmm. Okay, so in that case, uh, uh, you know, a mutual fund company, uh, uh, a, a registered investment advisor, a corporate treasurer, those for, for control reasons have to separate the, 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 the trading of the asset from the custody of the asset, it. whether it's by law or by good control practices. Um, and so, so because these are bearer instruments, right? So, so that's, that's where, where Custodia's business model is designed to be. Mm -hmm. It's not designed to, to, essentially say, oh, we don't believe in self-custody. In fact, you will see that some of the biggest custodians in the Bitcoin universe are telling individuals, don't custody your coins with us. You need to learn how to self-custody them. Mm. So the big custodians are either there for just temporary custody while you're transacting on an exchange, for example, or or for those that, that cannot by law or accounting control practice uh, or internal control practice um, need to separate the, the trading of the asset from, from the custody. Okay, okay. So, so ultimately, I, I would still really encourage everyone, go figure out how to self-custody your Bitcoin and start thinking through different scenarios, right? So you might forget your recovery seed phrase if, you, if, it, if it's just stored in your head mm -hmm. or you might pass away. And in which case your children and grandchildren don't get the benefit of the fact that you own Bitcoin. And in effect, what you're doing is just contributing that to the Bitcoin community as a whole, because those Bitcoins will never, never be recovered. Okay, so you have to start thinking through the diversity of, of what it takes to store a bearer instrument. Yeah. And it, so instead of portfolio diversi diversification in assets, start thinking about portfolio diversification in what I would call operational risk which is the risk that a government might try to confiscate it, the, a risk that you might forget your seed phrase, right. a, a risk that your house might catch on fire or have a flood. And if you wrote it down on a piece of paper, um, it might, it, you might lose it permanently that way. And, and there's so many engineering solutions to all of these things. Um, Multi-sig, where you give your lawyer a private key. Mm. Okay, but that's subjected that, you know, that, that, that's, that's, there's an attack vector for a government, an authoritarian government on that. Yeah. Right. Um, so you have to start thinking a lot about the operational risk. What's your geographic diversification? What's your, um, what's your, what's your, your, um, estate planning diversification? And then you got to think about tax on top of it. And a lot of people just don't want to go there. I understand that. But, um, when it's a matter of, of protecting all of the fruits of your labor yes. because you're, you're currently storing them in a, in a dishonest system that's where, where, where your purchasing power is being stolen from you every day through inflation, um, people start to invest more time. And again, I think that that's, that's, that's why we're, you know, we're, we're certainly getting more traditional finance people interested in Bitcoin. I want to talk a little bit about what exactly is going on with Custodia and the Fed and more kind of like the, mm -hmm. the, the bigger picture issues there, which are, to me, it looks like 
the Fed does not want the competition or the government does not want the competition. The banking system is federally controlled out of Washington, D.C. We saw that with Operation Choke Point 1.0. Uh, and, there, and part of the reason why Wyoming legislators were interested in creating the new uninsured bank charter that couldn't lend was because in one case, a firearm dealer got debanked and almost lost his business over that. And so they were interested in getting out from underneath the pressure of the politicization of the banking system, which is happening in a huge way in Washington, D.C. And by the way, I'm not pointing fingers at one political party. There are authoritarian, um, it, you know, strands of thought running through both political parties right now, right? Look at the the banning TikTok um, or, you know, folks that want to use the banking system to ban access to an abortion or just as much as those that want to use the banking system to ban access to a firearm, yeah. okay? Um, all of those things are authoritarian. Um, ultimately, at the end of the day, uh, really, it, it puts the question front and center, should the government control money? And in the case of Custodia, again, Wyoming created the special purpose bank charter. If you go back and look at the history, Senator Lummis uh, wrote in a op-ed in, in the Wall Street Journal a year and a half ago or so that the state of Wyoming worked with the Kansas City Federal Reserve in over 100 meetings to create this new charter. Okay, so Wyoming did not go off rogue. Yeah. It was working extensively with the Fed itself. And then what happened? Washington, D.C. came in and, and clearly um, nixed it. Now, um, there is a pending lawsuit. I cannot talk about that for obvious reasons. Custodia filed suit against both the Board of Governors and the um, Kansas City Reserve Bank in June. Stay tuned. Um, uh, but that's, that, that goes to the heart of the issue over whether the Federal Reserve is more powerful than a U.S. state. And it, and it, and it does get to the argument uh, that the Fed laid out on Custodia's membership, which is different than the master account application. The master account application is the subject of the lawsuit. The membership is not. The membership application was denied in this 86-page order, which broke all kinds of Fed decades of Fed um, practice and procedure. Right. Uh, we will be detailing some of those things. We couldn't talk about it until it all came out public. But because of the magnitude of the disclosures of confidential information, which again, broke with decades of Fed practice, um, there's a lot out there we can discuss now. Not all of it, but we did say in a press release on Friday that, uh, that, that the Fed did bully Custodia uh, and, and that we were not intimidated by that. Uh, they used press leaks to try to to get us to back away, yeah. uh, to to withdraw our application and drop the lawsuit, and also to um, uh, and also to uh, uh, this eighty six page order, of course, um, because it broke with all kinds of of procedures. We said there there were numerous procedural abnormalities. Just wait, we will we will be detailing those that we can detail because of all the disclosure of the confidential information. So it, it raises an interesting question. Uh, why did the Fed shoot a bazooka at a bunny rabbit? Um, yes. And it did coordinate with the White House and it did coordinate um, with, with uh, both the Board of Governors and the Kansas City Regional Reserve Bank, which is nominally independent, I say in air quotes, they claim they are. Um, but it's pretty clear because this was all done on the same day. And we have we have additional evidence uh, that it was coordinated more than just the coincidence that the press releases all went out at the same time. There, at 1130 Eastern on January 27th, the White House, 
and the Fed both released anti-crypto statements at the same time as they announced the denial of the custodia application. And then with precision timing, a couple of hours later came the master account denial and a motion to dismiss the lawsuit. All kinds of procedural violations in all of that, okay? And it's all going to, uh, well, we're going to disclose uh, some of those procedural violations that we can point to based on the confidential information as early as today. Um, so long story short, uh, the, the, the Wyoming special purpose depository institutions can operate without the Fed's permission. And stay tuned because we are state, a state chartered bank. We were granted a certificate of authority to operate last fall. We waited for the Fed. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, the Fed did a complete U-turn. You'll see in the details that we disclose. We were making a lot of progress and we were optimistic with good reason. Uh, and then suddenly um, this, this political decision intervened in, Janu in January. And um, coming back to Nick Carter's article, he raises the question, did the Fed's anti-crypto crackdown tip off this entire bank run yes. that we're in that's gone well beyond crypto? And there is and well a beyond lot the US. of reason to believe, for yeah. sure. There are, and, but again, it's the insta fundamental instability. And I pointed that out. This anti-crypto, anti-tech wing of the Biden administration with whom the Fed was coordinating, for what, for what reason, I don't know, um, because the Fed is nominally independent, mm -hmm. right? Just like the, the Reserve Banks are nominally independent of the Board of Governors in D.C., we saw that that was not the case. And then the coordination between the Board of Governors and the White House, again, those are nominally independent groups, but they were coordinating. Why? We don't know the answer. Um, but it will ultimately all come out, I'm sure. And uh, it's this big anti-crypto crackdown. But here's, here's the punchline on this point. They own the results of what has happened, and 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 I think they they underestimated just how unstable the underlying banking system was. And by starting the crypto crackdown and proverbially shooting the the crypto friendly banks and the most tech forward banks that they wanted to bring to heel because they were bucking the federal bank regulators a little bit, including Silicon Valley Bank, um, they wanted to bring these banks to heel. Well, look at the damage they've wrought. They own it. Yeah. You know, it's such a simple concept. Like if you think of just parenting, it's like if you go and you're going to just punish, punish, punish and try and force your child to do something that they don't want to do. Well, what's going to happen? There's going to be much worse consequences and results to that whole thing. If you just let things go, things kind of balance out. And that's what's called the market, right? <laughs> but we Well, and that's a great point. It's a really great point. And it gets to something super simple, which is what do you really want your bank to be? Yeah. Solvent. Yes. A solvent company never needs a liquidity bailout because it's always able to give you your money back when you want it. Right. And if you agree to tie up your money in a certificate of deposit or a long-term you know, savings account, then you don't have a right to your money back right away. And you contractually agreed to give to make that loan to your bank. But for demand deposits, you want the money back right away. You want your bank to be solvent. It's a simple concept. Yep. And instead, what we have is bank regulators that are off focusing on a bunch of other stuff. They took their eye off the ball. Again, I think it's funny that, and it's sad, it's unfortunate, that the Fed was spending so much time shooting a bazooka at a bunny rabbit, Custodia, which was not even taking external deposits, while it should have been focused on the solvency of the banking system as a whole. Well, I think the question that 
I would ask myself and that people might want to ask themselves out there is why is it then that Custodia has this business model, which is going to be a solvent bank, which for every dollar you have a dollar and eight cents to back it. And it's actually a model that looks like to me, it would be safe and secure and stable and reliable and all the rest that, you know, the government and the Fed and all those institutions claim that the financial system is, but it's really not. Why would Correct. they not want Custodia to operate? Why would they block it? And why, um, why do they see a bunny as something that needs to be shot at with a bazooka? <laughs> <laughs> it's a very good question. I don't have the answer. Eventually, it will all come out. Uh, there's one other fact that I can add yeah, to the equation, sure. which is that Custodia was granted a patent in July of last year for effectively a bank-issued stablecoin. The tokenization of a bank deposit, a U.S. bank taking in a U.S. dollar deposit and turning around and issuing a token for that product. Now, here's the interesting nuance. The Federal Reserve, we all think of it as, an, as, a, as a monolith. It's not. It's the Board of Governors sitting on top of 12 regional reserve banks, which are legally owned by their member banks. Okay, so the Board of Governors in the U.S. is a federal agency. Everyone acknowledges that. The question is, what are those 12 regional reserve banks? Now, if you look at the balance sheet of the Fed, everyone talks about the Fed balance sheet. Again, it's actually an amalgamation of 12 regional reserve banks. The board in D.C. doesn't have balance sheet. The balance sheet of the Fed is actually in those 12 regional reserve banks. Each one of them added up to, to comprise the entire Fed balance sheet when it reports in aggregate. The money gets issued by the 12 regional reserve banks. And here's the punchline. If they are private entities, they are subject to patents. And Custodia has the patent on the tokenization of a bank deposit. Is that a blocker for the Fed issuing a central bank digital currency? Oh, that, uh, that is a great, great question. And maybe that's where part of the answer lies. Because to me, all of this goes back to CBDC. And, you know, that is kind of the path that most countries in the world are on, right? And that is a hill I will die on. And uh, personally, yeah. And uh, Custodia Bank finds ourselves potentially in the middle of it, if indeed that is the case. I will say I don't have evidence right. that that is the case. Yeah. There's plenty of smoke. Uh, is there fire? We don't know. Uh, but when you see the, the, the blog post that Custodia will release, hopefully today, it will become clear to you that something changed. There was a U-turn in the Fed's thinking in January of this year. Oh my gosh. What was I, it? And it? And that's when it started to coordinate with the White House. Wow. Yeah. I'm so excited to read this. Um, Caitlin, we are pretty much out of time. I've really, really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you so much for coming on. Do you have any last thoughts that you'd like to share? Not your keys, not your coins, folks. Go get yourself educated. The best thing you can do in this environment is to, is to increase your own skills uh, and, and go, go learn how to self-custody. Uh, there are so many things available out there on the internet. One place I can point you to is Jameson Lopp, who is a, uh, he's on Twitter and his um, pinned tweet has access to resources. Uh, there are, of course, others, but that's one place that I can think of off the top of my head uh, for you to go educate yourself. The best investment you can make in you and your family's future is to educate yourself at this point. 
Great. Thank you so much. I can't wait to see how this unfolds and uh, I'm rooting for you. So thanks. Thank you. <laughs> much appreciated.